And from the KTOO Newsroom, I'm Anna Canny. The Juno School District lost nearly $270,000 to a scammer posing as a vendor last year. According to city staff, they haven't taken the necessary steps to recoup that loss, but district leaders say those decisions are still in progress. KTOO's Katie Anastas has more. City Finance Director Jeff Rogers outlined the incident in a memo shared with the Assembly Finance Committee. He said someone claiming to be one of the district's vendors asked to change their banking information. The scammer used a spoof email address that varied slightly from the vendor's real address. At the Assembly Finance Committee meeting Wednesday night, Rogers said it's a well-known strategy. This particular scheme is very common. You can't listen to a webinar about fraud. You can't go to a financial conference. You can't, you can't, you can't step out your front door without hearing that this is really a very successful method for fraudsters to use, which is to call and say, I represent a vendor and I want you to change my banking instructions. The city recommends that staff contact vendors separately to verify requests like these. But school district staff didn't do that, Rogers wrote. The scammer stole more than $93,000 in October and more than $175,000 in November. The school district became aware of the theft in early December. But by then, it was too late to recover the funds. Scammers used a similar method to steal more than $329,000 from the city in 2019. The city has a risk fund for these kinds of incidents and could cover much of the district's loss. But according to Rogers, the Juno School District hasn't filed a claim with the CBJ risk manager or the city's third-party insurers. I know that there has been communication from the CBG risk manager to the school district, and there has not been communication back. But Juno School District Superintendent Bridget Weiss says she has communicated with the city. She says she told CBJ in mid-February that the school board would discuss potential insurance claims in executive session at its March 7th meeting. She says the district received Roger's memo shortly before the finance committee meeting began. I think that we have been in contact. Have we made all the final decisions related to this? We have not. And the board had has a planned executive session on Tuesday to have this very conversation. And that has, was scheduled uh, when Jeff Rogers submitted his memo to the assembly. Rogers says city leaders have asked the district to make the public aware of the incident since mid-December. But Weiss says the district was waiting for more information from the investigation, which is still ongoing. We very much uh, work hard as a district and a school board in being transparent. Um, and But there are no, we wanted to make sure we had all the information that we could have um, because then we can share more publicly if we know exactly what happened and what can be shared. Weiss says the attack was external and not from someone within the district. She says the district requires annual cybersecurity training and is reviewing its protocol. Wednesday's Assembly Finance Committee meeting also included a discussion of the school district's request for additional funding from the city. The committee moved the request to the full assembly for a final decision. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. More than a year into the war in Ukraine, Alaska's government is doing its part by sending aid in the form of Alaskan seafood. KMXT's Brian Venua reports that the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute is handling the state's food distribution. 
Bruce Schachtler is ASME's Food Aid Program and Development Director. He says while ASME doesn't own any of the seafood, they've helped manage the state's aid programs. That includes sending over $300,000 worth of Alaskan seafood, or about 3,600 cases of canned pink salmon, to Ukraine. We do things on behalf of the legislature of the state of Alaska. Most recently, at the request of the legislature, we sent three containers of canned salmon over to Ukraine. When the state government decides to send aid, they set a budget, and ASME solicits bids from companies across Alaska. Companies then bid on the sale and offer stock at competitive rates to ensure a maximized amount of product. The state has aided in several disasters over the years and through ASME has sent food to the Philippines after devastating typhoons and areas suffering food insecurity in Africa and the Middle East as well. Schachtler says ASME has a history of running the state's aid programs. ASME's been facilitating humanitarian aid for the last 20 years. ASME was asked about domestic food insecurity at a recent presentation to the State House Fisheries Special Committee, particularly as the state has been slow to send food stamps or process applications since August. Schachtler says ASME would be interested in sending food to those in need across the state, but they need funding and approval from the legislature first. I've discussed it with the State Department. I've discussed it with a few members of Congress uh, in Washington, D.C., but uh, I have not been contacted or heard anything further than that. If the state decides to purchase domestic seafoods for Alaskans in this year's supplemental budget, aid could be sent to food banks as soon as next week. But if aid isn't included until the 2024 regular budget, folks would have to wait at least until July. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Venois. The state of Alaska is proposing to sell more old-growth trees on its land in southern southeast Alaska. As Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, the state managers say they're obligated to conduct the sale despite pushback from community members. The State Department of Natural Resources' five-year harvest plan proposes timber sales equaling about 62 million board feet. That includes clear-cutting about 2,600 acres of old-growth trees. The old-growth is, is marketable currently. Greg Staunton is the state's area forester for Southeast. The Division of Forestry seeks timber sales as part of its constitutional mandate to pursue using natural resources on public lands. Old-growth logging is controversial for its impacts on the environment and subsistence food sources, like deer and salmon. The U.S. Forest Service froze old-growth sales in 2021, and this year restored the roadless rule, protecting thousands of old-growth acres from logging. But federal protections don't apply to state land. And Staunton says the state doesn't have much choice. He says there just isn't much marketable young growth available in the state's inventory. The proposed sales are in a dozen main areas in the region. Some projects could get started as soon as this year, and others are still in review. Most are near towns. Staunton says that's where the state owns land in southeast. A lot of the land base that we've been charged with managing here is in uh, proximity to where communities are. And that, that's a product of how we were granted um, land um, at statehood. One logging project that's set to begin this year is a controversial timber sale in Whale Pass on Prince of Wales Island. The state would clear-cut about 300 acres of old growth near town and build four new miles of logging roads. That decision has been made. I think we have a product out there that's workable. Um, you know, it, it does not satisfy all people that are, you know, brought their concerns forward. I recognize that. 
Some of the whale pass logging is within city limits, and most residents oppose it. Stoughton says he takes public feedback seriously. He says they've walked the site and considered any potential risks. In the end, it's state land. While it's, it's adjacent to the community of Whale Pass, we recognize that um, is also uh, legislatively classified state forest. So that's one of its purpose is to be used for providing forest resources, of which, you know, timber is one of the key things that it's meant to provide. Jimmy Greeley is with the homeowners group Friends of Whale Pass. He spoke with KRBD last fall. Basically, it would cut the whole clear, clear cut the hillside and then kind of make Whale Pass not look very, very green anymore. Another group in opposition is the Prince of Wales Community Advisory Council, representing over a dozen communities and tribal governments on the island. They wrote a letter to the state with concerns that the logging is above homes. They thought to themselves, surely they can't be serious. That's Katie Rooks. She's with the environmental group Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. They oppose the state's entire five-year plan for several reasons. She says the clear-cutting would scar up land near communities that are pursuing tourism, and there are some projects that are listed as TBD to be decided. There's a lot of ambiguity, okay? There's a lot of incomplete information with this particular state five-year plan. For several of these sales, they don't list the acreage, the board feet, or the road miles. In fact, they say in here that the, uh, the last three years of projected sales in this document are uncertain. The state's timber sales in southern southeast cater to two main logging companies, Alcan and Ketchikan, and Viking Lumber on Prince of Wales Island. The two have been requesting the harvests. Stoughton says smaller mills couldn't build the infrastructure needed. Well, in the larger sales where there is significant road to be built, um, the bigger companies, you know, they have more capital resources that they can bring to bear. The state's Southeast Timber Sale Plan is described in a 36-page document that includes project maps and other details. The public comment deadline is listed as February 28th, but Staunton says they'll continue to accept feedback beyond that. Reporting for Coast Alaska, in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning.